Hey y'all, Coach Dennis here with the Endurance Project. So tonight, uh, I got a couple of topics I want to talk to you guys about. You know, I posted a Facebook post today asking folks, um, listeners, what they might be interested in me discussing, and there were several topics, but a couple of them were diet, um, mainly because I think, you know, with my recent change in my own diet and going, you know, pretty much strict carnivore in the last couple of weeks. Um, a lot of people are interested, so I think that was one reason. And then the other one was cadence. You know, a lot of people want to know what the whole, you know, importance is with cadence in terms of running and, you know, why it's important or why it's talked about so much nowadays. And so I figured I'd discuss both. So to start out, we'll go with diet. So Recently, I don't know if, you know, some of you guys have been following me on Instagram or whatever. You've been seeing my posts about how I've been going, you know, how I've basically started a strict carnivore diet as of January 1st. And it's pretty much like the name implies. It's mostly just uh, meat and animal um, related products. So uh, cheese, uh, eggs, and meat. Um, not much dairy outside of eggs, which really eggs isn't considered isn't dairy, even though they back in the day the pyramid charts put it on there, but it's not really dairy. But um, you know, it's it's intended not just to specifically be low carb, um, because you can get a pretty decent amount of carbs with organ meats and stuff if you're eating organ meats like liver and things like that. But it's meant to be a pretty much a total elimination diet to it really started out, so so the original intent, well, I mean, it's been around forever based on various tribes and, you know, over evolution and mankind, tribes that pretty much had no choice but to eat just meat um, based on where they were, you know, worldwide or on the globe. And then obviously up until, you know, not all that long ago, we didn't have the access we have now to, you know, simple carbs and processed foods and sugars and um, the abundance of fruits and vegetables, you know, that was all seasonal and depending on where you lived was what you were limited to. So if you live somewhere north, you know, in the, you know, Arctic or if you lived in Fenway or somewhere like that, then you obviously weren't getting, you know, papayas and mangoes and watermelon and things like that. So you ate what you had locally, whereas someone from down south, you know, south of the equator, where it was constantly warm, then obviously they had more of an abundance of fruit and veggies and plant life and maybe didn't need to rely so much on meat. So anyways, recently the the whole reason for the carnivore diet kind of coming mainstream and, and you know, uh, getting a little bit of momentum is because it was a way to essentially eliminate any kind of foods that could be bothering you, um, whether that be, in my case, it was, um, I, I was having a lot of, last 10 years or so, I've been having a lot of stomach issues, so basically, you know, not to go too, you know, too much TMI, but um, just had a lot of issues with my stomach and bowel movements, and, you know, it seemed like anything I eat, you know, in the mornings, I'd spend my first hour of the morning in the bathroom, and it was just, you know, whatever, awful, so um, when I was still training and running all the time, I was going to go out for a run in the morning, I literally, if, if I was going to start my run at 6 a.m., I better wake up at 4 a.m., so I made sure I went to the bathroom eight times before I uh, left the door, so um, that was partly what it was for me um, to, to try to basically eliminate everything but meat, because you can completely 100% survive on meat. It's got all the nutrients you really need for the most part, so it's something that you can do for a short period of time. 30 days, 60 days, whatever, and then gradually add things back in, which is what, you know, I, I intend to do, so, you know, I don't intend for this to be a lifelong thing, I intend for it to be a way for me to cut out all the bullshit, basically go with what I know will work, what will sustain me, what will allow me to thrive, and then gradually add things back in, and then determine whether or not my body and my stomach and my inflammation and how I feel and you know my energy levels, if all that can handle whatever it is I introduce back into my diet, fine, I move on to the next thing. 
And I think eventually what it's going to come down to is I'm going to come away with, you know, a handful of different uh, plants, maybe a handful of different fruits, and then just stick with that. And, of course, the meat and the fish and um, animal-based products that I'm eating now. So what I envision would be, let's just say, you know, I eliminate a lot of things and I determine what bothers me, what doesn't. And let's say I come away with, okay, I can eat all the meat I want, I can eat all the fish I want. But now I can eat sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes are fine. I can eat, uh, you know, sweet potatoes and peas. They're fine. Whatever. And then I can maybe eat um, blueberries, some blackberries, some raspberries. Those suit me fine. No big deal. Um, maybe a few nuts. And I can eat that stuff, and it's fine for me. So that's what I intend will happen. And what I will say, and I'm pretty much 100% confident that I – have absolutely no intent to ever get back to the standard American diet, and I have no intent to get back to eating like I ate for years, where, you know, I eat pizza when I want, or I eat, you know, cookies, I eat, you know, processed shit. So essentially what it comes down to is going forward, you know, once I get off the all meat and I start transitioning things back into my diet, it's only going to be probably... 20 or less items there's not going to be you know just a plethora of all types of shit that you know is on the shelves of most most grocery stores and i'll never go back to eating the way i ate before because one i know it's just not going to sit my sit for me and it's just gonna i'm gonna feel like shit but two there's no way in hell that anybody can say that you know eating oreos or you know eating pizza or any of that shit is good for you even in moderation you know no one even knows what that term means. Like, what is moderation? Because the truth is, there really is no such thing as moderation because people eat it all the damn time. And, you know, it's one of those things that every time you do it, it just adds up. It's just that much more shit in the tank, and eventually it just completely destroys, like, your entire body. And, you know, with the whole up and down with the yo-yoing effect of insulin and you know, your body and your liver and everything having to try to process that. It's just complete, it's just complete garbage. I mean, if you can stay away from it, then do. And it's not a matter of if, because you can, everybody can stay away from it. It's just that we choose to go ahead and eat because most people, it's just, it's one, it's lazy. You know, we're lazy. We don't want to cook. We don't want to go out and actually try to find something that nourishes us. We just want to find something simple off the shelf, put it in our face, and then that's it. And then the other aspect is because society revolves everything around eating. So, you know, several times a week or a month, you know, at the office at work, there's donuts out on display. There's cookies. There's this. There's that. Everybody goes out for lunch to eat. And they go to either fast food places or they go here and they go there. And it just adds up. And it's every day, every day. So there's no way that that's moderation. Um and honestly, like I said, you just don't need that stuff. So there's really no need to go down that road. And so to go back to the, you know, my old point and, you know, people were saying, oh, well, if you just eat all meat, like, oh, it's going to just wreck your, you know, heart. And it's going to wreck your cholesterol and it's going to do this and that. The truth is, is just like with most things. Oh, and let me just backtrack a bit. So I didn't just jump into this um, overnight by any stretch of the imagination. I researched this diet for, for years, for a couple of years, and was always very interested in it. And I myself, just like anybody else, had reservations. I'm like, there's no freaking way you could just eat meat and consume all that cholesterol and fat and be fine. So the more I started looking into it, the more I started looking into the people that do it, a lot of the professionals, a lot of the doctors that recommend it. I mean, there's a lot of doctors out there, professionals, experts, you know, if that's what we're calling experts these days. But all these people that not only are saying it's good for you, but actually doing extensive research in it and taking blood uh, samples and looking at the differences between, you know, someone on a standard American diet and someone on a vegan diet and someone on, you know, an all-meat diet and look at their blood work and their blood panels and you see that cholesterol and triglycerides in the in the blood is not really actually a bad thing and that our bodies have evolved to uh, process this and actually we're meant to process this 
you know, this pattern and this, this way of life. So this way of eating. So, you know, for years it was always thought that triglycerides and, you know, cholesterol in the blood, that that meant that, you know, you're, our arteries are clogging and it was this and that, but that's not actually true at all. And what is interesting is, so when you go and do a blood panel and if you're going to get your cholesterol test and your triglycerides tested, you know, doctors will tell you to fast for 12 hours, sometimes 24 hours beforehand. And what's interesting about this, there's a few doctors that's done this and there's one specific doctor who's done this where he started doing it on himself actually because he was interested to see and because he had the ability to do it and he was a doctor he could take his own blood every day and get it tested so what he noticed was if he fasted his triglycerides and his cholesterol levels were higher than if he hadn't fasted so he started doing more research started looking more into it and what what ends up happening is so when you fast your body you know thinks hey you know like what's going on here i'm not eating like i need energy but i'm not getting anything you know put in my stomach so what's going on here so what he determined was that essentially the liver you know which is actually what sends out you know and uh allows the body to release these triglycerides and stuff into the blood then it's doing that because it thinks it's starving so it sends more triglycerides more cholesterol into the blood so that it has more energy to provide to the body and the muscles and the organs. So, long story short, come to find out, it wasn't the amount of cholesterol in the blood or the triglycerides that was unhealthy. It was actually doing it for a reason. And, you know, new evidence is showing all the time, and there's tons of studies out there, that consumed cholesterol has nothing to do with cholesterol necessarily in your blood so you know it's always been thought that oh if you eat like garbage food and a lot of like high cholesterol food then you're going to have high cholesterol and actually in reality it's just a standard american diet that's causing this high cholesterol basically the insane spikes back and forth up and down all day of insulin you know you consume a shit ton of carbohydrates your body you know has to try to you know, take this glycogen and this carbohydrates and turn it into insulin, and then your liver has to release it, and it goes up and down. It's just so much damage to the liver, to the kidneys, to everything else, to all the other organs. And this is, like, why people are diabetic, and this is where diabetes comes from, and this is why all this stuff can be reversed on a, on a good diet and cleaning up all that, like, bullshit sugars. So there's that aspect, and then the fact that, you know, for years, it was always said that, you know, athletes need a lot of carbohydrates. You know, you always hear, of course, obviously, the uh, carb loading for a marathon or the night before a marathon. You need to go out and eat a million, you know, pounds of spaghetti and stuff. And the fact of the matter is, and the truth is, that the science just don't show that. I mean, you just don't. You don't actually need all these carbs that you think you need. And you certainly don't need to get them from bullshit sources, you know, like pasta and things like that, that your body really, honestly, it's foreign to your body. Because in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't all that long ago when we started eating things like that. You know, a few hundred years back, we were just eating whatever was in our environment. Mainly meat, mainly animal sources, and then whatever else we could forage and find, berries and everything else. And animals do the same thing. So we didn't have that luxury of going to the store and grabbing, you know, pasta off the shelf and bread and chips and candies and cakes and stuff we didn't have that luxury so you didn't have all that abundance of carbohydrates but you could get a lot of those carbohydrates that you do need because your brain needs carbohydrates obviously a few other organs need carbohydrates and primarily operate off carbohydrates you can get that from organ meat you can get that from other sources milk obviously uh cream things like that so you don't have to consume it in the traditional sense that we do now. But furthermore, you know, the body, there's this thing called uh, gluconeogenesis, which basically will take in the protein that you eat. So you eat protein, you eat, let's say a steak or two or whatever, and your body takes that in and it can convert that in the liver and can convert it back into glucose that can then be sent to the muscles and stuff so you don't actually need carbohydrate intake to produce carbohydrate output if that makes sense so 
um, your body can basically bring in proteins and even fats and can convert it so that you still have energy for your muscles, still have energy for your organs. And again, this isn't my push. This isn't me saying like, just go to eat meat because I don't plan on doing this the whole time, you know, the rest of my life. And as I mentioned before, you know, I gradually reduced things. So I started out a couple years ago in terms of just researching this diet. And I gradually started like basically transitioning myself a little bit at a time. And last May, I decided to give up uh, beer and alcohol. So that was the first step, which was where for me, that was where probably most of my carbs and sugars were coming from because, you know, I was drinking several beers a day on average. And so that's where a lot of that was coming from. So as I cut that out, my diet, and then again, of course, obviously, if you're familiar with drinking, you know, you have a few beers. The first thing you want to do is eat something shitty. And that normally would be for me, but to go to grab whatever shitty food was in the cabinet. And that could be Doritos. It could be whatever. Um, you know, we didn't really buy that stuff, but if there was anything there, like even my kids, like snack crackers or something, you drink a little bit, you get hungry, you start like fiending for food. And that's what I did. And I would eat a lot of excess carbs for no reason. So, and shitty carbs at that. So that was the first step was to cut that out. And once I did that, then I started gradually within the last year, I started, um, basically cutting out first. I cut out like the processed stuff. I started cutting out chips and crackers and you know things like that that I didn't really need and then the next step was to cut out um, a lot of the high glycemic fruits so I cut out a lot of the high glycemic fruits and I was just eating uh, lower glycemic stuff like blueberries here and there and not a lot of them and then the next step I started cutting out a lot of the veggies I was eating and trying to find more of low glycemic type veggies even um, and a lot of my it basically came down to I was eating sweet potatoes every once in a while, every couple of days, not every day. And maybe, you know, some asparagus or stuff here and there. But then it was just mainly meats, uh, fats, which, you know, olives. I, I did olives. I did avocados. I did nuts. So it was kind of keto, cheeses. And then it got to the point where I just started cutting out even the avocado and the olives and everything else until now where I'm at which is basically just meat, cheese, a bit of like cream, heavy cream that's just um, no carbs, no sugars in it, and the heavy cream, butter, and uh, eggs, and organ meat. So that's where I am now. So anyways, like I was saying is, I think for a lot of people, they look at diet wrong in the sense that everything's about calories. And the problem with that is, Calories don't paint much of a picture at all, in, in, in honesty. So you can always hear, like, calories in, calories out. So everybody tries to base things on, well, how many calories do I need to eat to maintain my weight or maybe lose weight or even gain weight if that's your goal? Um, or to how many calories do I need to, you know, eat in order to perform as an athlete? But what they don't look at is the actual nutrient density and the – amount of nutrients, vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and all that in the foods they eat. So when people go, oh, it's simple math, it's calories in, calories out. That may be true in terms of, you know, losing weight, but even then it's not really. Um, what I look at, and I try to tell athletes to look at, is look at not the macros so much, not your macros, which is basically fat, carbs, and protein, but to look at how much, you know, what, what's the uh, mineral density, what's the vitamin density, and what's the amino acid density. Because um, you can eat, like, literally just table sugar and get calories. But if you look at table sugar, there's nothing else in it, really, other than carbs. It's just simple carbs, and that's it. There's not much else in it. You know, you're not going to see much vitamin content, if at all. You're not going to see much minerals. If you do, it's very trace amounts. And you certainly aren't going to see any amino acids. So, you know, these are the things that are fundamental, not just for human function and human life, but for performance for sure. You know, if you want to perform as an athlete, and this means put on muscle or maintain muscle or build strength 
or build speed or build power or build endurance, you have to put in your body the right shit. And that means that you better be looking at the nutrient density, you better be looking at the amino acid density, what's in it, what type of amino acids, how much of it. And this is particularly true if you're doing any extreme um, dieting or not even necessarily extreme, but just let's say if you're a vegan and a, you know, extreme, extreme vegan or vegetarian, you're not getting like several of the key amino acids, especially the centrals, because you can't get it from plant-based. Hell, the, the, the nine essentials your body can't make at all and you have to get from outside sources. And most of those nine have to come from plant-based foods. And then beyond that, beyond the amino acids that you need, iron, for instance. And you have the uh, hemi-iron and you have the non-hemi-iron. And you can only get hemi-iron from animal products, meats and dairy and stuff like that. And that hemi-iron actually helps the uptake of non-hemi-iron too. So that's the the contradiction that a lot of like vegans and stuff don't see is they say, oh, I can get all my protein, I can get all this. You can get protein for sure. There's no doubt at all that you can get the amount of protein you need. But the problem is most of these proteins are not complete proteins. They don't have near the nutrients and the uh, amino acid content that you need or the, uh, you know, uh, numbers that you need, the percentages that you need each day. And then something like iron, you have to take that in the presence of, you know, to absorb it right. I mean, with vitamin C, and then, of course, calcium can be leached if you take in too much vitamin C. I mean, it's, it, you have to really, like, know what you're doing. And it's a big fucking science project, so to speak. It's a big lab experience or experiment. And, you know, I don't know any dietitian ever. I mean, and I work with a lot of athletes who work with a lot of dietitians. So it ain't like I just have access to one or two dietitians that I know personally. But over the years, the hundreds and now going on thousands of athletes that I've coached who have hired and bought and paid for dietitians, I have, and when I know that they're working with a dietitian, I have them send me the stats and the numbers and the data and the stuff that their dietitians tell them. I haven't seen a goddamn dietitian yet that has ever, ever suggested for an athlete to take taurine or L-carnitine or creatine or take any of this stuff. I've never seen that. And these are people that are supposed to be experts, supposed to be, you know, these professionals that you go to and you pay shit ton of money for. And they damn near just always give you the by the book shit that they learned that they you know were forced to learn and that now they're regurgitating it like a parrot and they tell you the same shit that they tell every other person that goes and hires them and they don't treat you like an individual and they don't know exactly what you're you know they don't know they don't even like necessarily look at your uh have you go get blood tests done they don't look at any of this stuff and even then that's a whole other can of worms in the sense that if you get blood work done you don't even they don't even test for like most of that shit unless you force them and ask them to specifically they don't test for most of the vitamins and nutrients that you're missing they don't test for the amino acids that you could be deficient in you get the cholesterol you get shit like that you don't get anything that is really substantial at all so not to say that all dietitians are bad cuz there is some good ones out there there's no doubt about it but just like with coaches and everything else most of them just copy and paste the same shit that like they saw in chapter 12 of some book 10 years ago. And they really don't know and they really have no clue. You have to treat every individual completely different. You have to try to break it down and gradually reduce everything from the outer perimeter into a smaller uh, you know, dot in the middle until you can kind of figure out what the athlete is missing or what they're not missing. And this takes a long time to do, so it's not just a simple process. And you know, with women athletes in particular, you know, every one of them's hormones are different. Every one of them, you know, has different levels of intensities of their menstrual cycle. So the common daily values that you see, oh, you know, like the daily values based on 2,000, you know, calories a day. And, you know, this is the percentage of vitamin C you need. This is the percentage of iron you need. Most of that's bullshit because 
first off, how do you even come close to like taking this like into account when everybody's completely different just in standard everyday activity, lifestyle, everything else? Now you're going to try to take athletes, some of them like high-level extreme athletes, and put them into the same box? I mean, it's absolute bullshit to think that, you know, an athlete who's running, let's say, a runner who runs 100 miles a week, that they should be on the same, you know, type of diet or the same, you know, daily values that Joe Schmo, the plumber, you know, who barely even, like, walks, you know, a day, they're on the same diet. I mean, it it just makes no sense. So, um, what I, what I would implore everybody to do is to really look into every layer of nutrition. Look at the essential stuff you need. Look at the amino acids. Look at your vitamins. Look at your mineral counts. Look at all that stuff. Get tested for it if you can. I'm about to go in and get my blood work done in a few a few days to test all this stuff because I want to see with this diet I'm doing. One, I want to see like my baseline levels, and then I want to see where they're at at the end of this test, and then I want to be able to mon- monitor that, you know, uh, month after month, year after year, as I age. So, I would say 100% go and get tested for this stuff, all this stuff, if you can. And it might be a little costly. I don't know if you have good insurance. It may not cost you anything, but it's worth it. It's worth every penny to know exactly what you're deficient in and what you're not, because everybody always says the same stuff. Well, I'm going to change up my diet because I have inflammation. I'm going to change up my diet because I have no energy levels. Okay, fine, but do you know why you don't have energy levels? Do you know why you, you know, have inflammation? You can just completely be, you know, throwing stones like into the blind. Like you, you have no idea what, what what you're up against. So you need the blood work to see this and see what you're deficient in. See what you know, maybe you have too much of. Because sometimes, you know, you could have too much of something, and it could be causing some of the issues you're having, fatigue or inflammation. So. It's not always a deficiency. Sometimes it could be a sur- surplus, and sometimes if you have too much of something, then it causes the same. It can cause some of the same issues as being deficient. So, again, like I said, please look into this and please, you know, try to find what's best for you. I'm not pushing any diet. I'm not pushing any sort of nutrition, but I am saying that you need to one try to eat as natural as possible. Try to eat the way we ate. Three, four hundred years ago before you know we got uh, inundated by in- big industry and you know the big uh, you know food industry and all that so try to go back to the natural roots and, and eat that way and then two just try to look into more and, and research yourself and just study up on all the amino acids and why they're important why you need them why you need these vitamins why you need these minerals it's fun. It's it's actually interesting. If you really want to dive into it, it's fun and it's interesting to to look at all this stuff. Like in in hindsight, I wish I'd have went into, you know, I wish I'd have been a chemist or something because I get geeked out about all this stuff and I love looking into it and I love trying to find out what happens if you add a little bit more of this, take away a little bit more of that, you know, put a little bit of more of this into the pot and take a little bit more of that out. So that's just you know, I, I like that and I'm kind of nerdy I guess, but it is what it is. So. Um, you know, we're going on 30 minutes with that and it's a lot of me ranting and raving, but you know, I'll wrap up that with the diet stuff, um, the nutrition stuff, and we'll go into the cadence debate, which is always fun. So a couple of my athletes and non-athletes, uh, that I don't coach reached out to me and they said, Hey, you know, we want to know more about this cadence thing. We've been noticing that, um, talk of the town is 180 uh, steps per minute and you know I look at the data from my Garmin and it's saying whatever it's saying 190 or it's saying you know 170 what's the big deal with this so first off the first thing I want to explain is um, because some athletes are like uh, I hear that 180 is the the gold standard and mine is saying 80 or 90 um, you know per minute so I kind of laugh, but obviously I, I I didn't think that some people don't realize that it's per foot. So you need to look at that. So if your cadence is saying on your garment, it's reporting back when you're running that it's 
90 than you are at the 180 because it's it's measuring one foot. So whatever foot it's measuring left or right, it's giving you that cadence. So it's obviously going to be the same on the other side in most instances. Sometimes some runners have a little bit of off cadence where one side will be working a little bit faster than the other, but that's kind of rare. So um, if you see something crazy extreme, way below 180, and it says 90 or it says 80, that just means you need to times that by two, and you'll get your number closer to the 180. Um, so then, beyond that, you have so the 180 degree, the 180 uh, steps per minute cadence came in back in the 80s. Jack Daniels, the uh, coach, not the the whiskey, but um, so he's a renowned running coach, uh, physiologist, uh, you know, doctor. Um, in physiology and biomechanics. Him and his wife were watching, I believe it was the 84 or 88 Olympics. What they noted was basically everyone from the 800 meters up to the marathon, when they watched them, they were recording their cadence, their running cadence. And what they found was that the average fell in right around 180 or so. That Essentially, all these elite athletes were running at 180 or higher for their cadence, which is basically footsteps per minute. And from there, he had he made this observation and he put it out there, and you know whether it be some literature that he wrote or some of his clinics or you know videos or whatever, and everybody just went off the rails with it. Oh my God, everybody's got to run at 180 steps per minute. And even he'll tell you, I mean, he does, you know, videos on YouTube and stuff. He'll even tell you that he never intended for it to be just passed out that way. It just was an observation. But what a lot of people miss with that is, yeah, of course, most of those athletes were running at 180 steps per minute because every one of them from the 800 meters up to the marathon were running sub five minute mile pace. So they were all running super fucking fast which means they had to have a really fast cadence because you can't run sub five minute mile pace with a very slow cadence. It's just pretty much physically impossible um, because cadence comes down to a lot of factors. It comes down to height, obviously weight, even um, where your center of mass is gravitated to. So, you know, obviously a heavy overweight athlete with a big beer gut, He's going to probably have a lot different cadence than a trim, slim, you know, runner because his center of mass and his weight is different. It, it, it's in a different spot. So he's got weight in a way different uh, area than, you know, someone that doesn't have that issue. And then you have lever arm, ish, you know, uh, links, which would be your leg links, your, um, you know, the, the different uh, bones in your legs. I mean, they're different links, obviously. So... You have to, you know, your femur and your tibia, those are different links for everybody. So because of that, then it's going to obviously impact your stride, not only your stride rate, which is your cadence, but your length, your stride length as well. And then you have strength and power. I mean, power and power to ground will dictate your stride length, which in turn will obviously dictate your stride frequency or your cadence. So if you have... You know, an athlete who is, say, 6'3", 6'4", and you see this, you know, you don't see it all the time, obviously, in the elite level, but you do every once in a while. You have, like, Chris Zielinski and those guys. You know, Chris Zielinski was, like, the first, uh, basically, non-African, so first white person to ever go under 13 minutes in, uh, or, not, sorry, not 13 minutes, 27 minutes in the 10K, and he was tall. I mean, I think he was 6'3", 6'4", bigger guy by runner standards, 170 pounds, something like that. And, you know, he would always get, you know, those that say, oh, you need 180 cadence would always say, well, his was less than 180. And obviously, because his legs are long as shit, like he's, you know, a good, nearly a foot taller than a lot of these elite, like Ethiopian and African, you know, Kenyan runners who are 5'4", five 5'5", foot five foot five, like uh, Kip Koji. That weigh 118 pounds. So clearly, 
he's going to have like slower cadence because there's no way you're going to be able to get your those long ass legs turned over that fast and get them back underneath you as fast as someone who's five five. It's just not possible. It would be like saying that you know, oh, a mouse has a higher cadence than a elephant. Well, yeah, well, no shit because look at it. I mean, look at a mouse, look at an elephant. Big difference. So uh, that pretty much should. There should be no argument there. And even if you go that route and you look at the animal kingdom and you look at different animals, they all have different cadences. And even from one uh, animal in the same species to the next. So, you know, if you look at a bunch of racehorses or a bunch of sled dogs, they may be fairly close, but for the most part, they all have different cadences. And so do people because we're not all the same size. We're not all cookie cutter and we don't come off an assembly line. Like we're all completely different. And aside from the fact that all this mechanical stuff, you know, the mechanics, the height, the weight, blah, blah, blah. A lot of it comes down to what's your past injury. You know, if you have injuries that uh, locks up your mobility in your ankles or locks up mobility in, you know, your hips or your flexibility, then clearly you're going to have issues and you're going to not be able to, you know, have the same cadence as somebody else that has never had injuries or maybe never had any issues. So you can't just look at it in black and white that, oh, 180 and that's it. I mean, everybody's 180. So I hate even like going around and around about this because you have so many coaches out there and so many, well, I guess people call them experts, but people who are considered experts espousing this whole well you need to have 180 because it'll cut down on injury it'll cut down on this it'll cut down on that and yeah if you have a super low cadence like let's say 160 you know uh steps a minute or something then yeah you might be overstriding so you may need to increase your cadence but at the same time you have to understand that cadence is indicative of the speed and the pace you're running because, you know, and this is where what pisses me off the most. This is where these experts that say, well, you should run 180 no matter what pace you're running. 180 minimum. Bullshit. I mean, 100% bullshit. Like, you cannot tell me that someone out there running a 10-minute, 12-minute mile pace, which is their, which could be their, like, quality, tempo, high-end pace. Like, it ain't even like they're running slow. Like, you know, a beginner, like, getting into running who's trying to like train for a marathon and their and their fast pace is 10 minute 11 minute mile there's no goddamn way that they're going to run 180 steps a minute and then you have a high level runner who's running 5 minute miles twice as fast with the same cadence it makes no sense because if you looked at it like that then that would say that would assume that you know the slow runner would have to run 180 steps a minute at 10 minute mile pace well then by that standard the five minute miler would have to run 360 steps a minute because it, he's running twice as fast and it just doesn't work that way it makes no sense whatsoever i mean it would be the same as if you look at it in a mechanical sense and you have the engine in your car and if you put it in different gears you can run you can get the rpms up to the same uh to the same uh number but you won't get the same speed, that's for damn sure. Like, if you put your car in first gear and you rev it up to, you know, 6,000 RPMs, you won't be going near as fast as if you put it in third gear and then get it up to 6,000 RPMs. The difference in speed will be 10 miles an hour versus 40 miles an hour or something, you know, along the lines of that. But you sure as hell aren't going to get it up to the same speed without blowing your engine. So that's what people need to understand. That's what people need to look at. It's not just simple black and white 180 you know go ahead and uh just do that because and that's the worst part about it too is that the cueing from a coach for the most part you have coaches that say um oh yeah i looked at your cadence 168 steps a minute here's a metronome go out and just run 180 well, now you've had a runner who, let's say they're 35 years old when they come into running and they decide to come to you because you're the expert in, uh, you know, biomechanics or running or whatever. So they come to you and they say, 
oh, I want you to help me coach, get better at running because I, you know, not fast and I'm injured, whatever. And you just straight up say, well, just go run 180 steps a minute because that's what everybody does and that's what you're supposed to do. So you've taken an athlete who's sat on the couch for 35 years. Now they got into running. Everything up the chain is fucked. I mean, they're, you know, they're, their hips are tight. They're, uh, you know, they have no flexibility, no mobility. They have imbalances from sitting at a desk job all day or who knows what else. Past injuries, you know, old football injuries, whatever the case. They come to you and you just tell them to go run 180 steps a minute. This could make things 10 times worse for them because their body has gotten used to operating in a certain way for 35 years and they've gotten used to operating in a certain parameter and now all of a sudden you're just saying, well, go out and change this overnight. Huh, doesn't work that way. You do that and you're likely to injure a runner worse than anything. So what I do is I try to get an athlete to fix this stuff without knowing they're fixing it. Jump rope running. Go out and pull a tire so you can build greater hip uh, flexibility, mobility, extension. Work on all that stuff. Build power to ground so that when you uh, increase, increase your stride rate, which means you're going to have to like pick up your cadence a bit too, naturally. You know, Do some strength movements. Do some power movements. Things like that that will gradually build it up. Um, go out and run in sand a bit. That way, because it's hard to run in sand, obviously, if you've ever done it, you run in loose sand, you can't do it without, like, picking up your cadence. So you gradually just incorporate this stuff into the athlete's daily programming, and eventually their cadence picks up on its own. You don't have to force it. You don't have to, like, tell them to think about it all the time, which is even worse because an athlete sit there, the last thing they need to do is every time they're out running, you know, they go out for an eight-mile run, and they're having to constantly think, oh, my God, am I doing 180? Am I doing 180? Am I doing 180? No. I mean... All that's like just stressing an athlete out for no reason, and most of the time, it doesn't even really fix anything. It doesn't make them faster. It doesn't help them with their injuries. It doesn't do anything. So, as I said, if you're a coach or even just an athlete listening, I mean, get your athletes to fix their self without you telling them what they're doing like wrong per se. Don't tell them like, okay, you're running 168. We got to bump that up 12 you know, steps a minute till you get to 180, this magical number, which is fucking bullshit. Um, so, like I said, find the things that will fix it naturally. Jump rope running is a great one. Water running, get in the water and run. You get in the water up to about waist deep and you run, I guarantee you you're not going to overstride. And I damn sure guarantee you that you're going to have to have a fast cadence in order to move forward. And you can do this with uh, water running too, with where, where you're actually in, where you can't touch, so that you're you got a waist belt on or whatever, and you're deep into the pool or out in the ocean where you're, you know, over your head where you can't touch bottom, do the same thing. You try to move forward, you can't really do it unless you're like humming along like a hummingbird and like getting that cadence going like crazy. So all these little things that the jump rope running, the tire pulling, um, strength work, sled work, all this stuff will definitely help you increase that cadence, pick that cadence up if you need to. You may not need to. And a lot of it comes down to fixing everything, not just the cadence. So if you fix power and, you know, power to ground, ground reaction force, which is the same thing pretty much, you fix that, then your stride rate gets longer and you start covering more ground. You get faster at the same paces you know, that you were before, you're, you're covering more ground each time with each step, and just depending on your mechanics and, you know, your height and your weight, you may or may not need to bump up your cadence. Some people do a little bit. It, it won't hurt them to, to bump their cadence up, but a lot of people don't. Most people don't. So if you're not hitting that 180 all the time, don't, don't stress it. Look at it like this. Like, use that Garmin as a measuring tool. So let's say right now yours is 170 steps a minute, or maybe it's 190. I mean, it could be over 180. No big deal. 180 is not anything magical. Um, that was an average observed by a guy 30 years ago with elite runners running sub five minute mile pace. So let's not get hung up on that. So anyways, let's go back. Let's say you're below that 180. You're 170 and you want to get it closer to 180 for whatever reason. Incorporate those things I was telling you, and then gradually watch what happens over time. I guarantee you, and I've seen it hundreds of times, I got data to back it up, you'll gradually see that go up. 
So let's say you go out and you run your, you know, one hour, you know, around your neighborhood every other day. And when you start, you run an eight-minute mile pace, and your cadence is, you know, 170. As you get faster and as you get more fit, that number will start growing up to where either one, the cadence itself goes up, and it might go up to 174 from 170. But you're you're operating at a lower heart rate. And your pace is getting faster. Now maybe you're doing it instead of at an eight-minute average pace, you're doing it at 7:45. And then you get a little faster. You get a little faster. You get more fit. Your heart rate goes lower. The cadence will also respond to that. It'll start coming up too as you get more efficient and you get in a groove, and you're not fighting your body's mechanics and you're not fighting, you know, your muscle tension and your soreness in your muscles and this mobility stuff because. A lot of it just comes down to getting into a groove of being a runner. I mean, you do something long enough and you get pretty damn efficient at it. And your body learns to adapt and become efficient at it. And that's with anything. So, it's not it's not crazy to think that a newbie runner who's never been a runner in their life, who all of a sudden decides that on their 40th birthday they decide want to take on a marathon and train for a marathon. And they want to like check that off their bucket list. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're probably going to have less than efficient form and mechanics. And they sure as hell probably are going to have less than 180 steps per minute cadence. And it's not going to look like an elite marathoner. And it's not going to be, you know, 180 plus steps like an elite level runner, Olympic level runner. No shit. Like, not anything that should be of any surprise to anybody. So, again, like, don't get wrapped up on that. I mean... That's one of the, the the fewest things that anybody should worry about. I mean, if you're going to worry about anything with running or getting better as a runner, cadence is way down the list. There's about 10 dozen things before that that should come into play before worrying about cadence. So um, I can get into a few of those right now, but, you know, I don't want to dwell on it too much. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, let's say you're getting into running, you should definitely work on building strength first, building power, working on flexibility, you know, working on all this stuff, working on aerobic threshold, aerobic capacity, anaerobic threshold, lactic threshold, all these terms thrown out, and I explain these in other uh, podcasts, so you can go back and listen to some of them, and I'll explain more in the future as we go forward and we start uh, talking about different things and uh, discussing different aspects of, you know, training to be an athlete and a runner and endurance athlete, but again, Cadence, in my opinion, and not just in my opinion, I mean, like I said, I've got data from hundreds of athletes over quite a few years, and cadence is something I never even worry about telling my athletes, never even think about it. And if I was to compare myself against a lot of coaches in terms of entry rate, not to say, you know, not to toot my own horn or anything, but on the grand scale, my athletes are almost never injured, rarely, if ever, injured. And you look at most running programs, runners are injured constantly. And I'm not to say this is because, you know, my program is the best or I think I've got it figured out. But I do think that over the years I've developed a pretty damn good, airtight, rock-solid program that will not only help an athlete improve and get better, but I am pretty, pretty confident and and you know, pretty satisfied with the results that very little and minimal injury risk. And I'll take that to the bank all day. I mean, honestly, that means more to me than my athletes going out crushing races and getting on the podiums, which plenty of them do. But um, as a coach, if someone said, what's the proudest thing that, you know, what's the thing you're most proud of? I'd say is my injury rate, which is very low um, with hundreds and hundreds of athletes over the years. The fact that my athletes can stay uh, injury-free and keep on towing the line and keep on getting on the starting line, I'll take that every day over, you know, a flash in the pan where you perform for a couple months or a year and you're injured all the time and then eventually after two or three years you're just burnt out and injured because you're sick and tired of being injured all the time. Yeah, I'll take the, you know, the stats that I have right now over that any day. So, um, you know, if you're listening and you're not an endurance project athlete, then by all means, you know, reach out, hit me up if you want or uh, an injured athlete wanting to try to 
fix yourself and get out there and do the things you enjoy doing, or if you're just an athlete looking to maybe perform a little better, maybe take your training to the next level, maybe take your racing to the next level, um, you know, even if you're not racing, if you're just trying to get in better shape and uh, become a better, more efficient runner, reach out to me and, um, you know, we can definitely talk and I can most likely help you out. So that's pretty much it, guys. And, um, you know, this is a pretty good, uh, this I think is the longest by far podcast that I've done tonight. But it was two topics that I am pretty passionate about and two that I think a lot of you guys can get some you know, good info and good advice from and take some tips away and um, hopefully put it into your daily life and your daily training. And again, if you guys have any recommendations on things you'd like me to discuss, then by all means do so. And my plan now is to start reaching out to more other athletes, but also other coaches. I want to start working with other coaches and doing podcasts, you know, getting in and talking shop. You know, we can do debates if, if that's what people want to see but just you know I don't want to just find coaches and athletes who agree with my programming and my uh, thought process and how I view things so I don't want to make it a one-sided thing and a bias type uh, podcast so if you guys have any recommendations of coaches you'd like me to talk with debate with you know discuss with then throw them my way throw athletes my way and we can definitely make it happen um, there's definitely some people I Myself, I'm interested in talking to. I'd like to get on, and uh, some of them actually have their own podcast, so maybe I can get on their podcast, one of the two. But definitely want to get this content out to people and start just plugging along and creating a library, a library for everybody with good content across the board. And um, that's pretty much it. So hope you guys have a good weekend. Um, I know some folks are racing tomorrow. I think uh, actually today I think it's a Spartan race, but. Um, couple races this weekend and of course over the next couple weeks couple big ones high rocks is coming up in chicago a lot of my athletes will be there i'll be there and um so that's pretty much it so until next time i will talk to you guys have a good weekend peace out